This is Macro Horizons, Episode 24, Handling Zero, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of June 24th. While this is the longest day of the year, we'll endeavor to make sure this isn't our longest podcast, even if it feels that way. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market, but more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. So Ian, after this last week, there's been a lot of chatter and increasing conversation around the potential for 10-year yields to trade with a zero handle. What do you make of that? Well, it's a logical argument given what's going on in the rest of the world to say nothing of the very strong performance we've seen in the treasury market. We did get 10-year yields below 2% to the land of the one handle. And so I'm not surprised to hear speculation that the rally could extend and we could see a more material pricing to a lower rate environment. However, that's not our baseline call for this cycle, even if at some point it is an eventuality. The logic supporting a zero handle on tens would simply be the fact that it's been a very, very long time since treasury yields were dictated by domestic fundamentals alone. If that were the case, we wouldn't be right up against 2% with GDP presently tracking at 2% for the second quarter, core inflation at 1617 and the stock market at record high levels. In fact, what's driving the longer end of the curve are global growth and global inflation expectations, which are clearly both headed lower at the present moment. Whether that's entirely a function of the trade war or something more systemic is the underlying question, and we'll get some type of resolution over the next week or two in the wake of the G20. Our baseline assumption continues to be that there's no grand deal And we anticipate a more material repricing in risk assets in the wake of the event. Then the question becomes, what does the new range for 10-year yields look like if it doesn't involve a zero handle? We could easily envision an extension of the rally in the medium term once the Fed finally delivers with the first rate cut and the market prices in a series. Our initial target of 190 in 10s very quickly gives way to the 188 level, which was the upper end of the range prior to the 2016 election. Using the experience of December 2009 to December of 2015, when the Fed was up against the zero bound for policy rates, what we saw at that point was 10-year yields in a range of 138 to 4%. Yes, 4%. While it'll take a fair amount of bullishness to get 10-year yields back to 138, we can't envision the bearishness that it would take to get 10s to 4%. So this suggests that we're going to be in a range, call it 150 to 250 over the coming months. If there is something more significant from the Fed, then we'd err on 
skewing that range lower. We have been contemplating the appropriate level for 10-year yields at the end of 2019. Well, clearly there has been some downward pressure on our prior estimates in the 240 to 250 range. We could very easily envision 225, 230 at year end in an environment in which the Fed has delivered on a series of preventative rate cuts. We see inflation slowly start to come back into the system. Break-evens in that scenario will be responding not only to an easy Fed, but presumably to a more accommodative ECB as well. But for the time being, it all comes down to Trump's performance at the G20. Suffice it to say, our Geiger counter of cynicism is crackling like a bowl of Rice Krispies. So Ian, I came into work and looked at the markets and I saw 10-year yields with a one-handle? That can't be right. Well, you probably came into work a little bit late. Be that as it may, 10-year yields did make it to a one-handle below the pivotal 2% level. And as we contemplate what that means for the direction of rates going forward, it's very easy to envision 10-year yields below 2% until we get the type of sustained inflation back into the system that would really spur a repricing to a higher rates plateau. We've heard from the Fed that they're going to, at some point, deliver a preemptive rate cut or two. Now, the dot plot suggests that's going to be 2020, but investors have clearly fully priced that in for the July meeting. One of my biggest takeaways from the Fed was that Powell didn't aggressively push back on the pricing that is in the market, which suggests that there's a certain degree of comfort with a July cut. Yeah, I completely agree. I think my biggest takeaway from the Fed was the dot plot and the kind of interesting dip, so to speak, in what we're seeing for rate projections for 2019, 2020, and 2021. Clearly, the Fed is trying to telegraph that they're willing and are going to cut rates, but that does not necessarily mean that we're going into a full-blown cut cycle. Rather, to your point, they're simply trying to stoke what remains a stubbornly absent inflation pickup and the fact that Bullard dissented and now that we've seen downward adjustments to 2020, 2021, and the long run dot, we're reaching this point where it's going to be a question of if the quote-unquote preemptive eases, whether that be 325 basis point cuts like it was in the 90s, or a different form, is going to be sufficient to get inflation, and most importantly, inflation expectations, back toward 2%. One of the things that really surprised me was I went into this meeting just like I went into every meeting in 2019, thinking there's no way that Powell is going to be able to deliver something more dovish than was currently priced into the market. Don't doubt the chair. Fair enough. But when I looked at the details of what the FOMC actually delivered, they really weren't that surprising, which tells me that the influence of the ECB earlier in the week was presumably as important, frankly. And two details that struck me in particular from the Q&A portion that point toward maybe more cuts than just those of a preemptive nature was the fact that Powell explicitly said even those committee members who left their rates forecasts flat, they didn't adjust their dots lower, but they did acknowledge that the case for rate cuts has become much stronger. And Powell followed that up by saying that trade uncertainty is now a material headwind to business investment, and that is going to naturally flow through to economic activity. And that makes the case for the not soft landing scenario, aka going all the way back to the effective lower bound, a bit more compelling, at least in my mind. It also puts the emphasis on the upcoming G20 meeting. 
frankly, very, very low expectations that we're going to see any grand deal come out of the meeting between Trump and Xi. However, once we have that information in hand, I would expect that there will be a reasonable amount of bond buying. So say in a hypothetical world, obviously a large assumption, a trade deal does get done. We come back to our desks Monday morning and tariffs are being rolled back. All is well in the trade world. What do you see that doing to yields? Be very good for stocks. What does it do for yields? I actually think a lot of the damage to business confidence has already been done. We've seen it flow through to Europe. We've seen it here in the US, certainly on the manufacturing side. The Dismal Empire State Survey and Philly Fed showed the clear fallout from the trade war. Does that reverse? Certainly doesn't reverse in a month. Does that mean that we have 10-year yields at 225 if the departure point is 2%? That seems unlikely. Probably worth 7 to 10 basis points in a sell-off. And then my concern is, does a spike in rates take away from the probability of a rate cut? And how do equities respond to that? I could easily envision a scenario, again, in the hypothetical world that a deal does come out of G20, that the equity market sees the odds of a rate cut in July diminish dramatically, which puts downward pressure on prices, financial conditions tighten because of a spike in equity vol, and then we find ourselves back in the situation where it could still be beneficial for the Fed to deliver some type of preemptive rate cut. So if even that is still going to leave a preemptive ease on the table, what's left out there to get tens back to 3%? Well, I'd actually say that the more accommodative the Fed is, if it leads to realized inflation and higher inflation expectations, that's actually the most direct path to higher long-end rates. Does that get tens to 3%? That seems unlikely, given that we just learned that the Fed's longer-run rate forecast is 2.5. If the upper bound for Fed funds at the moment is seen at 2.5, and we live in a world with effectively zero-term premium, the idea that investors wouldn't be willing to aggressively buy anything north of 250 would be difficult to stomach. The front end, however, an entirely different story. We've received several questions about just how far this rally in twos can go. Well, we know that once the Fed delivers its first rate cut, that the market is very quickly going to price in even more. So we're running at, call it, two and a half, three rate hikes priced in over the course of the next 12 months. We get the first one that rolls forward, very supportive for the front end of the curve. Does that mean we get to 150 two-year yields? Certainly not off the table, but it depends on how the Fed characterizes the ease and to some extent what is going on with the rest of the world at that point. And I think you say it well, Ian, and that's the exact reason why front-end supply this week is going to be very interesting. Just given what we've now learned from the Fed and the fact that rate cuts are coming, probably in July, you have to imagine that two-year, five-year, and seven-year yields, even still where they are, are going to be compelling enough to bring out pretty solid demand at the auctions. For those playing for a preemptive ease, sure, maybe the upside is a little bit more capped. And there's going to be a subset of investors that don't think we're going to get a deal out of Osaka, continue to see the trade war escalating, growth prospects deteriorate, and a relatively quick trip back to the effective lower bound. 
if we're in that world, being able to get in two-year yields before the Fed even executes their first cut seems like a pretty good opportunity given the liquidity that the Treasury Department will provide. The other thing worth noting was that significant short that we saw in TY futures. Obviously, that bodes well for the seven-year auction, but it does explain, at least on the margin, the extent of the rally that we saw in the wake of the Fed. And I think that's very reminiscent of the large rally we saw at the end of 2018 and a couple of weeks ago, that the short pace, particularly in TY, is not near the extremes we saw in 2018, but as it has retraced and then rebuilt, eventually something bond bullish occurs, you see a rally which may not have extended as far as it ended up going, but the fact that you still had this reasonable short base in the market is only going to exacerbate that bullish price action, arguably why you saw 10s trade through 2%. And what's next in 10-year yields? That's a question that I've heard a couple times over the course of the last week, week and a half. If we think about how the economic data and the outlook have evolved over the course of the last two or three quarters, we have seen sentiment deteriorate back to pre-election levels. We have seen a lot of the classic indicators, whether they are inflation expectations or some of the more nuanced aspects of the data, we are effectively where we were in the third quarter of 2016. If we look at the range in 10-year yields that was in place at that point, you had roughly 132 to 188, give or take. That's a range that we're comfortable with. It's going to be very, very difficult to go anywhere below, call it 160, 165 at this point, certainly in the very near term, unless we have an extreme risk-off shock of some type. Obviously, geopolitical concerns come to mind in that context. And a really good question we got recently is, now that the dust has settled after the FOMC, we know what Powell is thinking. What really is left that's going to move the needle for policy and therefore the treasury market. The ones that come to mind are core PCE, core CPI, NFP, and the unemployment rate. Said another way, the most important economic data for the US. I'd add, and this is more than just a little nuance, the trade deal really does matter, or rather the lack of a trade deal because we have seen that translate through instead of to equities, which was really the Q4 2018 story, but rather to the sentiment data, it will be very difficult in a world in which there's no trade deal between the White House and Beijing for us to really see a repricing to higher rates in the near term. One of our core tenants that has been reinforced over the course of the last couple weeks is this notion that treasuries function as something other than a traditional asset or a traditional sovereign debt. We've made this argument before, and that is given the liquidity in the treasury market, given the relevance of the U.S. to the global economy, treasuries function as a insurance instrument to some extent. There's a premium that one is willing to pay in terms of foregone yield simply to be long treasuries when things do go bad. And that was the experience thus far in June. And I think that dynamic is only going to serve to lower the level that we like to call the dip buy. It doesn't feel that long ago that it was 262. Then it feels like only last week we were saying 240. Now 225 really seems like a no-brainer, at least to me. If you hated them at 265, you hated them at 250, you hated them at 225, you got to love them at 2%. Dear 2%, thanks for the memories.
And circling back to what we said is one of the things that can really move the needle at this stage, this week we also get one of the top pieces of data that could move the needle in May's core PCE data. Our in-house approximation is looking for a 0.15% month-over-month read, which said another way means we're either going to get 0.1 or 0.2. Not exactly the boldest call, but regardless of what that month-over-month figure is, it's likely not going to translate to a large swing in the year-over-year number. And thus, while the information is important, we're not really expecting anything material to change coming out of Friday morning. The one thing that I would add to that is we do get the personal spending figures. Recall that we saw the upward revisions to retail sales. And with an upward revision to retail sales for April, a solid read for May, it wouldn't be surprising to see personal spending spike. The question in my mind then becomes, what happens to personal spending in real terms? It was 0.0 in May. And let us not forget that personal spending is more than just goods. So an upward revision for retail sales means that roughly 25% of personal spending has upward pressure. That might be a bit nuanced, but it does point to at least a degree of uncertainty for the economic data in the upcoming week. Let us not forget there are durable goods as well as a variety of Fed speakers. We hear from Bullard, although I can't imagine him saying anything more dovish than the dissent that he just offered. It will be interesting to see how Bullard frames his disagreement, but at least for me, what's going to be interesting is hearing from other members of the FOMC now that Powell has delivered what he wanted to to the market. Williams will be interesting to hear how another roughly centrist member of the committee is thinking about the potential for the July cut and just how convinced policymakers are that they'll be able to hold off on an ease until 2020. Clearly, the market's very skeptical of that. And while Powell didn't push back at the press conference, maybe some of the more hawkish members on the committee will. I would actually be very surprised if any Fed speakers attempted to walk back what has been priced into the market. Again, that was one of the things that I was struck by was Powell's reluctance to really push back against what is currently reflected in Fed funds futures. So what you're saying is we're not on the precipice of traditional summer trading conditions. Summer trading conditions? That is so 2007. In the week ahead, the market will continue to digest the change in monetary policy, the no change change, in fact. We actually went in with the assumption that it would be very difficult for the Fed to outdove dovish expectations, and once again, they managed to do so. It was an impressive move to actually lower the 2020 dots, which clearly triggered the bulk of the Treasury rally. The curve re-steepened. We got right up against that 30 basis point level in twos, tens. It held, presumably on profit taking into the weekend, given how poorly the trade carries. In that context, this week will be all about waiting for the G20 meeting. Expectations are relatively low for Trump to actually deliver in terms of a true trade compromise with China. We expect that the takeaway will be something to the effect of progress has been made and we're getting close to a deal. Stop us if you've heard that one before. The bigger question is how do risk assets perform in that environment? More record highs? Or do we see a challenge of the optimism that's currently being priced in? And just to be clear, that's Fed easing optimism and not trade war crushing pessimism. Another topic on the radar over the next few trading sessions will be how the Fed chooses to augment the message delivered at the FOMC meeting. One of the biggest risks presently in the market is that investors have priced in too high of a probability that the Fed actually cuts next month. 
at present, there's roughly 33 basis points in the futures market, which means that one of two things will happen. Either we will see the Fed actively start to walk back expectations for a rate cut in July, or we'll continue to see what we'd characterize as the tacit acceptance by the Fed of the market's expectations into the next meeting. As we've already alluded to, we would really like to say that we're entering the classic summer trading period where liquidity starts to fall off, the sustainability of price action comes into question, and we roll forward to the early days of September. Alas, the realities of the trade war, the importance of G20, and the fact that we might get a midsummer's ease really negate the chances that it's going to be slow summer trading conditions anytime soon. We've reached the point at which we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. We'll be watching Osaka, where extended meetings happen and the art of the deal is put to the test. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email me at ian.lingen at bmo.com. That's I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at B-M-O dot com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. 
BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.